0: Amen. Well, turn your Bibles to Romans 2. We're going to be reading from uh, verse 17 to the end of verse 29. We're continuing in our series in the book of Romans. And so far, Paul has been hammering us, or may, maybe hammering the, the people in the church in Rome. They have been divided in Rome. There is, the church is full of both Jews and Gentiles. And Paul has been laying into people who find their confidence in anything else but faith in Jesus Christ. And so to begin with, he tells the Gentiles that um, they are deserving of God's wrath. They're without excuse. And then he moved on in chapter 2 in the first 16 verses. And he talked about how now the Jews, the religious people, the moral people, the self-confident, self-righteous people, they're deserving of God's wrath equally. And so Paul, he's going to continue to hammer today. So let's look in our Bibles at Romans two seventeen through 29. This is God's holy, inspired word for us today. Let's read it together. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children having In the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. Who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that for each and every one of us here, you would revive us. Lord, would you revive us with a passion for you from the heart? God, would you give us a desire to love you, to trust in you, to rely on you from our hearts? God, I pray that you would help us put aside all complacency God, I pray that wherever we've grown comfortable, we would be shaken up by you. God, wherever we put confidence in what we know or what we do, or and Lord, what we're a part of, I I, I pray, Lord, that we we would forsake all confidence in anything else but you. God, I pray that our confidence would be in the fact that you promised to circumcise our hearts. I pray that we would trust in you from our hearts. And God, I pray that through that, Lord, as you bring your conviction, Lord, I pray that you would be in great hope, Lord, and I pray that we would worship you, that you say that you will praise us for our hope in you. And Lord, I pray that we would would long for you, we would look for your reward and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, sometimes overconfidence can be a little bit funny. Sometimes. Um, There's the story of this really world-famous brain surgeon at the time. He was a guy named Dr. Bronson Ray, and he was taking a walk home with his dog, and as he was taking a walk, he saw this this boy on a scooter come around the corner, and he smashed headfirst into a tree, and realizing the boy was really badly injured, the, the doctor told a bystander to go ahead and call an ambulance, and then this neurosurgeon, he's brain surgeon, he... He proceeded to administer first aid and to check for vitals and and do the things that really needed to be done. But as he was beginning to do that, a little boy, probably about the same age as the one who had gone around the corner on the scooter and hit his head on the tree, he pushes through the crowd and he says, "Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, sir. You better step aside. I'm a Boy Scout and I know first aid." Sometimes overconfidence it can be funny. It wasn't funny in the case of Chernobyl, the Ukrainian minister of power, he stated just the week before think of the irony of this: The week before, he has stated very confidently that the odds of a meltdown or anything going wrong were, were less than one in t- 10,000. Certainly nothing can go wrong. And Chernobyl was one of the worst nuclear disasters of the past century. The Space Shuttle Challenger, NASA, estimated the odds of catastrophic failure as 1 in 100,000. Surely nothing could go wrong. And I remember watching it explode. Pearl Harbor, the American military, believed that Pearl Harbor was immune to attack. That's a direct quote from one of the generals of the time. Overconfidence... It might seem funny at times, but it can be deadly. The apostle Paul, he has been hammering on the church there in a sense. You think, Paul, you're writing a letter to the Romans, and I thought that you were supposed to be encouraging to us. Paul, I thought that you were supposed to encourage our faith. I thought that you were supposed to give us confidence in God. But what you're doing is you're tearing us down. And so Paul, Paul is really on a mission here. And the reason why he's tearing them down is because he wants to tear down any confidence in anything else other than Faith in Christ alone. And so he goes on in, in Romans 1, in the end of chapter Romans 1, he, and he says to the Gentiles, that you have no reason for confidence, and you have no excuse. No matter what you've known or not known, you have no excuse. God's going to judge you on the basis of works. And we, we heard the wonderful truth that we know that Paul trusted in, is that our works that we trust in are the works of Christ. But then last week, Paul is hammering the, the self-righteous, those who trust in in morality, those who trust in religion. And this week, he's not letting up. You know, as a a pastor, you don't love to preach several hard messages in a row. But Paul loved to do this for some reason. For some reason, Paul was hammering them pretty hard. And you might think, Paul, ease up. Don't be so hard. After all, you're writing to the church. You're writing to your fellow Jews in this chapter. Paul, you're a Jew. What's up with that? Paul, these are people in the church, and these are your fellow Jews, Paul, don't be so hard. And so it should make us wonder, Paul. why is Paul being so hard here? Why is he hammering them so much? Why is he driving at his point so forcefully? Well, I think it's because he, he really was concerned that people who trusted in their knowledge, that people who trusted in their ability, people who trusted in and how they'd been raised, people who trusted in their religious club. He was concerned that trusting in all those things, it ultimately leads them to hell, and he wanted to make sure they had true confidence. And that's my hope for us today, too, that that for any of us who are trusting in our abilities, anybody of us who are trusting in what we know, and it's really easy to do that, isn't it? It's, It's easy to trust in what you know, the knowledge you have. It's easy to trust in your past and your track record. It's really easy to trust in the kind of home you grew up in, the morality you had or have. It's easy to trust in religion. It's easy to trust in the club you belong to and the name you go by. And yet, I believe that God wants us to abandon all hope in anything but circumcision from the heart. And we'll get to that and we'll explain what that means. Jesus, he gave a similar warning in his ministry. He tells us a shocking story in Luke 13. We have this for you on the overheads. They're coming up to him and they're asking him how many people would be saved. And, and boy, Jesus, it must only be a few. And so in Luke 13, chapter 23, I mean, verse 23, somebody comes up to him and it says, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, will not be able. Let me read that again. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter. That should be shocking and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, and he'll answer to you, I don't know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. You know how shocking that must have been to Jesus' hearers? I think the people in Rome, the Jews in Rome who were part of the church there, who um, they had been raised right, they had done right, they had believed morals, and they even believed the truth about who Jesus is because they're in the church. They're members of the church in Rome. They would have been shocked by how Paul is talking to them. And if that's not the effect for you today, then I don't think we're hearing God's word rightly. It should be shocking to us that someone who's raised in all the right ways, who has all the right information, all the right truth, actually knows the scriptures, probably memorized good portions of it, who's, who's got the right background, the right pedigree, who actually believes the truth about Jesus, those people are in danger. That doesn't make you take Notice and sit up. Then I don't, I don't know what will. Paul here, he is not trying to be mean, but he's wanting to make sure that they know the stakes couldn't be higher, and he's wanting to strip away any confidence that the church there had, and really for all believers have in themselves or what they know or what they're a part of. He wants to strip away confidence in those things and say, no, 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 no. What matters is where's your heart. Where's your heart? Where's your heart for God? Where's your confidence? Their overconfidence that he tells them it would lead to dishonoring God and, then, and ultimately people would reject God. He says their confidence in their pedigree, their Jewishness, it would lead to them being cut off from God. So here in this challenging passage, I think God really has one big idea for us and that's really the only trusting in God from the heart is rewarded by God. Only trusting in God from the heart is rewarded by God. That's what the very last part means and we'll get to that when we close as well. But the only person who receives praise from God is the person who trusts in him from the heart and abandons all hope and everything else. And so let me ask you today, what are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? What are you resting in? Having knowledge of God's covenant and appearing to be a part of his covenant family doesn't mean that one is actually a part of God's covenant family. That's what Paul's telling us in, these pass- in this passage. Being born into a religious system, having knowledge of all the outward signs of being religious, it doesn't make a person God's chosen people. It's not the earthly family that you're a part of. It's not the works of the law that are basis for being God's chosen people. It's faith always and only that's the basis for being a part of God's family. So, the signs of religion are no, of no value without circumcision of the heart. And I think that should make all of us stop and say, wait a minute, are, are we circumcised in our hearts? I don't want to induce fear. I don't, don't want to induce, I don't think that's the point of the passage, but Paul really is challenging. I think it gets, we need to be challenging where Scripture is challenging. We, we don't want to introduce fear, but we do want to stir up, we want to provoke in a good way because we want you to have true confidence. And so Paul, he, he, he begins an attack, really. He's, 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 he's using a, a form of argument called diatribe, and he's setting up um, the, uh, the argument of somebody who might argue against him, and he's setting it up and answering that. And so we see that again in verses 17 to 24, and he's beginning this attack on the sensibilities of a religious person and on the confidence in their knowledge. And in verses 17 to 24, we really see this big point here that he's making, is that misplaced confidence in what you know, it dishonors God. It's good to be confident in what you know, but misplaced confidence, putting an overconfidence, having too much confidence in what you know, or having your confidence rest in what you know, that actually dishonors God. And it can end up making it so that people reject God, blaspheme God. And that's what he's saying in, these, in verses 17 to 24. This is really the, the bulk of his argument is in these verses, and we're going to spend most of our time there. You know, I, was, I remember watching a rebroadcast back when the U.S. was conducting a war against Saddam Hussein in Iraq and that regime. And I remember seeing this video of the Iraqi president and, and he, during the war, and the video was being streamed live from this underground bunker. He was in hiding. And in this underground bunker, in the middle, they broke to his scene of him in this underground bunker, and he's forming the people of Iraq that they were trouncing the coalition forces, that they were wiping them out, and they were victorious. And this was in the midst of most of Iraq had fallen already. And what everybody else was seeing, what he failed to see or failed to admit, was that the war was not only going badly, he, he and, and, and his regime was losing, and their confidence was was ill-founded. I, I think ultimately, as Christians, we have a danger of having an overconfidence in our knowledge, our ability, what we know, what we've read, our, our times with God even, our quiet times. We can have confidence in all those things and that is a misplaced confidence and the Apostle Paul is addressing those same root things with the Jews. You see, the Jews were religious. They, they had never really done anything bad They'd grown up in the church or in the temple and they knew all about God. And in fact, it was really good that they knew about God. They, they knew the scriptures. And so when they put their faith in God, when they trusted in Jesus for their salvation or when they knew the truth about Jesus at least, it was good because they were able to teach the truth. They could expound the truth. They, they were a wealth of information and knowledge. Those were the pillars in the church, supposedly. And Paul is... Is saying misplaced confidence that ultimately dishonors God. I imagine if you were a good Jew and you got to this point in the letter, you probably would have struggled with Paul a little bit. You probably would have been thinking, hang on, Paul. You, you're one of us. How can you say these things? You know, we're, we're not like the unrighteous Gentiles. We're confident we're going to be judged differently because we know the truth. And if we know the truth, doesn't the truth set us free as Jesus said in John? But Paul's made it clear that, that apart from trusting in God through faith, they're just as bad off as the Gentiles because failure to obey God's law in any part means they're under God's wrath still unless they're trusting in Jesus. And Paul's been making it plain. He says this, the religious people, the self-righteous people, they need the gospel just as much. And now he goes on further and he says, maybe you call yourself a Jew, you can't assume you're exempt just because of who you call yourself. You can't exempt, assume you're exempt because of what you know. Maybe a better thing for us to do today is to put ourselves in that context, the effect it would have had on the Jews, if you say, if you really call yourself a Christian, maybe that would be a helpful way for us to contextualize it. But if you call yourself a Christian, if you rely on your knowledge of the Bible, if you boast in God, that passage has a lot more forcefulness, doesn't it? To be able to call yourself a Jew, that would have been a high privilege. It would have been a a privilege for for any Jew in Paul's day. They would have actually been very proud of the fact that they were Jews. They were God's chosen people. It meant they'd been given the very words of God Almighty. It meant that they knew the truth about who he was and about all of mankind. You'd be called a Christian, it's a high privilege. To be called a Christ-like one, a Christ follower, what a high privilege that is. It means you bear the name of Christ. You know, but growing up in the church or even being raised in the cultural Christian South, I guess, if you call it that, it's not good enough. For a Jew to rely on the law, it, it was a good thing, but to rely on the law ultimately was a bad thing. You know, you think about, well, well, Paul, wait a minute. Why are you saying this? Because in Psalm 119, um, it's the longest psalm in, in all of the psalms. And David here, he goes for, I think it's 100 and, it 172, 127, something like that. It's a, it's a lot of verses. He just passionately proclaims the wonder of knowing God's law and the greatness of knowing God's law and how sweet and good the commandments of God are. But the problem is, is that the Jews in Paul's day thought that relying on God's law would mean that they would not be judged. And they were confident in the law instead of the, putting their confidence in the giver of the law. Maybe a modern equivalent is relying on the fact that you know the Bible. That you've heard what it teaches. Maybe you think, if if I know the scriptures, I, 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 can, I can read them, I can teach them, I can understand them. And if you somehow think that that means that you are have new life in Christ, then this warning's for you. And Paul keeps going, he says, if you boast in God, and you think, well, wait a minute, Paul, isn't boasting in God a good idea, right? Because doesn't Scripture tell us to boast in God? And David, in, in Psalm 34, or two, he says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Isn't David the, the epitome of the best king of Israel? And he says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name forever. And then the apostle Paul himself later on in Corinthians, um, he says, therefore is it written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it, how, could, how could you be hammering them for boasting in God? Isn't that a good thing? But what he's saying is you're boasting in your knowledge of God. You th- you're boasting the fact that you have God somehow because you're deserving you have God and that's where you're, you're, you're boasting in the fact that, that somehow God saw something in you that was favorable. That's why you have God. You're boasting in, in God in all the wrong ways. And he's getting at the person here who, who says they rely on God's law and they boast in God, but doesn't take God's word seriously enough to submit to and obey God's word. Do you, Christian, Who call yourselves Christian? Do you know the Scripture? Do you rely on the Scripture? That's good. But do you have an overconfidence in your knowledge? Do you boast in God? That's good. Let's put aside all boasting anything else. But do you boast in the fact that you know God as if somehow you were better? Look down again, Paul says, and to know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. Paul, wait a minute, why are you hammering them? Isn't it good to know God's will? Isn't it? Isn't it good to prove what's excellent? Isn't it good to be instructed from the law? Doesn't all scripture tell us to do that? No one's got God's will. It's a high privilege, isn't it, to, to say that, wait a minute. Um, you know, there are so many people in the world, if you look around, who just are blind, who don't know God's will, who her clueless, and, and yet we've been given a treasure, and we have been given a treasure to know God's will and to understand it, and we actually know how to live for God, and that's wonderful, and that's a good thing, but Paul, why are you, why are you picking on us because of that? You said we're instructed in the law, but why is that a problem? We're supposed to be instructed by Scripture. Scripture is actually meant to inform every area of our lives, and We we have a, one, of the, one of the truths that we hold to in this church is that um, a that sola scriptura, what the Reformers used to say, which means... Um, God's word alone is the source of all truth and, and, and really the source of, of all that we believe and hold to. So isn't that good? And it's a blessing to receive instruction from the law. It helps us know God's will and how we should live. And it's a blessing to be able to say, you know what, I know how to live and I can improve what's excellent and I can live in obedience to God and I can pass that knowledge on to other people. But what is Paul driving at? He's saying if you're putting your hope in those things and your hope is misplaced it's interesting he's not saying those things are bad and actually he commends those things later on and he commends those things in his other letters but he's 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 driving at as he's saying for you who are religious for you who know a lot there's a danger with much knowledge you can actually be deluded into thinking that your confidence lies in what you know or what you do or what club you're a part of and then look in verse 19 in your Bibles, there he says, and if you are sure, <laughs> he says, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, well, aren't we supposed to be? A light to those who are in darkness, well, aren't we supposed to be light in the world? He says, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having a law and embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, and here's where it comes down in verse 21 he says, do you not teach yourself? In the verses so far, Paul has talked about all these privileges that those who call themselves Jews have. Now he goes on to list these things that those who claim they're Jews, they can claim to do because they enjoy special privileges. They, can, they, they claim to be a, bl- a guide to the blind. And, and by the way, being a guide to the blind is a good thing. You know, helping those who don't know or understand the truth of God see the truth of God, who are, who are in darkness they could be a light to those in darkness. That was a role that God promised to Israel. In Isaiah 42, 6, he says, he says to Israel, it's kind of the same thing. He says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And, and when I opened up before, before, I even read this passage, I talked about the reason why we love having a building here is because we can be a light to suburbia. It says to open the eyes, look down at verse 7 of Isaiah 42, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison who sit in darkness. Paul, those are good things, aren't they? And the answer is yes, they're very good things. The answer is that's what God has for us. He has us to to open up the eyes of the blind by, by showing them the light of God's word. He has us leading people out of darkness by setting the prisoners free, by preaching the good news of the gospel. So those are good things. But if we put our confidence in, in our knowledge, if we put our confidence in what God, and, and, and those things, that it can be a misplaced confidence. The advantage of being a Jew is that you possess the true wisdom from God. That's the advantage of being a Christian, right? But be wary if your confidence is in calling yourself a Christian and the fact that you know a lot or that you know what's right Paul says do you, do you not teach yourself <laughs> does your life display the fact of, of what you know do, do you actually live out what you say you believe you got a lot of information you got a lot of learning you got a lot of knowledge and that's really good but do you actually live it out and that's hard, that's provoking, because you know all of us are aware in some way we don't, we don't, all of us are aware to some degree we're all hypocrites. Um, I remember I was out with a bunch of people from work when I was in the marketplace, and I was an IT director, and I was sitting at the table with a bunch of other VPs and directors, and they were having this conversation, and the idea of religion came up, and a lot of them were talking about how um, they didn't like religion because there's too many hypocrites in religion, and I said, well, I I guess I'm, I'm one of those, really, because I don't know how any of us are not hypocrites in some way. And they all were like shocked, like, well, how are you a hypocrite? Well, I, I'm a, I, I often don't live out what I claim to believe. Now, that shouldn't lead to condemnation, but it should lead to the fact that we need to be careful that we're not self-deluded, and to thinking that because we know all the right things, that means we actually believe them and trust in them and live them out. There's a real danger that Paul's talking about. You who teach others, don't you teach yourself? There's a danger of knowing the truth and understanding the truth. It's dangerous. You're actually held to greater accountability because of that. Even being able to teach the truth and tell others how to live the truth out and think and act and being assured that you yourself obey and live out the truth of God's word, Be careful. We can easily fall in the trap of thinking that knowing is the same as doing. You know how many of us we've heard a great sermon or you've read a great book and you think, That was awesome. But you've really not changed. You've not applied it. You've not pursued to to respond to God. We equate knowing with doing too easily. You know, that's the curse of any good Christian counselor. Is that we can be deceived into thinking. It's the curse of any good pastor, really, is we can be deceived into thinking because we know the truth that we're actually relying on God from the heart, trusting in Him and living it out. Christian, don't don't be deluded. You who call yourselves Christian, you who teach others. And by the way, we're all called to teach others. It's a danger for anybody who knows and hears the truth about God. It, Hearing and being inspired and reading and agreeing, and even sharing it on Facebook and saying, Oh, so good. (laughs) And I'm not picking on anybody specifically. If you've done that this week, (laughs) I don't follow you that closely. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Like, hmm, good quote. Excellent. I'm glad. Are you, how are you living that out? Are you applying it to yourself? Paul is shaking them up for good reason because he wants to shake them up so that their confidence only is in Jesus you know I I think God would have us be shaken up a little bit today he wants to revive us you see I love the the song we sang earlier and I hope we get to sing it later on but um, the, the prayer for God to revive us true revival happens when we realize that that we are utterly lost on our own we have no confidence in anything we We know on our own, we have no confidence on our knowledge, our ability, but we have confidence in Jesus and that's when the Holy Spirit revives us and gives us a fresh passion to live for him. Well, Paul goes on, he says, why do you preach against stealing? Do you steal? Now, he's using hyperbole here. Not every Jew in the church was stealing. But, you know, I think about it. If you think about how Jesus spoke of the law, when when Jesus said that, as I mentioned a couple of weeks earlier, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. It's, it's the it's the root sins, it's the motivation here that Paul's getting at as well. But they were actually stealing at times too. They would justify it's you know, some thought that, that day it was okay not to pay somebody the full value and to get a deal that only benefited them, as long as that person was a Gentile. You know, as long as that person's not a fellow Christian, it's okay to to kind of try to, to, to make it a one-sided transaction, when as Christians really we should be thinking about, okay, what is what is actually good for them and good for me? And you know, no Christian would condone stealing today, but some would justify stealing by getting paid in cash, not claiming it on their tax return. That's stealing. And what he's addressing is that nobody can say that You can trust in your own moralism because no one is absolutely consistent. That's what he's getting at. Be aware of trusting in your morality so much that it becomes moralism and that you're actually trusting in a false idol of your morality and how good you are. Be aware of that because you're probably failing in the same areas that you think you're doing so well in. You ever corrected your child for being angry and then done it angrily? you got to stop being angry right now. Man, I've done that. I can't believe how self-righteous you're being. That's self-righteous, by the way, in case you're wondering. Whenever you're using language like, I can't believe, or I, you're probably a little self-righteous. How could you? Yeah, self-righteous. You ever spoke up against something? and then done the same thing. Let me, let me ask about stealing in some other more subtle ways. you ever been lazy at work and claimed you worked that whole time in your timesheet? Ouch, that's stealing in some sense. Now, that doesn't mean to make you it condemned. It's just to realize that we need God and we can't have confidence in our own morality. You ever stolen in some other sense? You ever taken credit that wasn't yours? Look in verse 22, he says, you, mu- you who say you- that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And you're like, hang on, okay, I don't actually commit adultery, I've never done that, and I've never robbed a temple. What do you mean by robbing temples anyway, Paul? Paul, No, no Jew there would have robbed a temple. What in the world are you talking about here? We already talked a little bit about um, adultery. Looking lustfully on another person. And then what, what is Paul talking about when he's talking about abhorring idols but robbing temples? Maybe he's referring to the practice of some Jews that they withheld their temple tax in, in Rome. It was, it was common. They were withholding their temple tax, and, and so they were robbing God, as Malachi referred to. You know, as a Christian, do you, are, you, are you withholding giving maybe to the church, or the people, to what God's called you to? Because you think, you know what, I need to save up for this important purchase. Or, and you're deluding yourself because you're selfish. It could have been that people in that day they were using, they would they would steal. <laughs> Jews in, in Rome were justifying stealing from temples. Actually, some people were actually justifying. It wasn't hardly uh, the the whole church there, but there were some in that church who who were justifying stealing a temple from a from an idol, an idol. I'm sorry, an idol from a Roman temple because they're false gods. They don't amount to anything. And so we're going to repurpose those, melt them down, and sell them for the, and then then give them to people who really need them and they claim to hate idolatry but they had no problem profiting from the idols they claimed to hate well how do we claim to hate idolatry and yet effectively bow down from to other idols he, he seems to be in examples there are some specific examples he must be referring to but there seems to be he's, he's re- referring to the spirit of the law behind the commandments You know, for maybe for us today, it could look like making money off an idolatrous practice, and then justifying how it's okay because we need the money. Or others, we engage in idolatry when we look to something for meaning in our lives other than God, and so we rob that temple. I like the way Tim Keller he paraphrases this passage. I think we have this quote for you in from his book uh, Romans to you. And by the way, I want to recommend that commentary or the book to you if you're looking to learn a little more from the book of Romans, it'd be a good resource. He says, if, if you let anything become your meaning in life, power, comfort, approval, possessions, pleasure, control, you're violating the command against idolatry just as much as the statue worshipers you abhor. If you treat religion as your savior, if you're violating the command too, you've taken a statue from a pagan temple, renamed it morality, and worshiped it. In other words, it's quite possible to use religiosity to veil our heart idols of career, sex, reputation, and so on, or to make religiosity itself our idol. That's painful. What's Paul addressing? He is addressing the problem of relying on your morality, relying on your moralism and know, and your what you know, and you whether you call yourself a Jew or a Christian, to be okay with God. It may apply to you if you have a religion that's okay with outward behavior, that's not inwardly changed by the truth that you know. If you are not passionate about God, you need to reevaluate why. Now, that's not in all cases. It's not to condemn. It's actually meant to give hope and to give freedom. If you're truly a believer in Christ, your life's going to be marked by personal conviction and a pursuit of personal application. And if it's not, and I don't mean perfect application, but if it's not marked by that, Don't be deluded. Have true and real hope. I don't mean perfect application, but an applied desire to love God with all that you are because you personally experience God's word as living and active to you and in you. may apply if you're quick to notice the failings of others. Are you quick to notice where other people fail? And you just think that's discernment? (laughs) But really you're self-righteous, You ever defensive when others point out where you need to grow? Are you relying on your knowledge of God and his word and your morals? It's only gonna lead to frustration and eventually failure and dishonoring God. And look in verse 23, Paul says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. If you boast in what you know about God and yet you don't do that, it can dishonor God. And Paul here, he's, lo- he's loosely quoting Isaiah 52. He says, on, on account of my name, you continually are. My name is, on account of you, my name is continually blasphemed among the Gentiles. And what he was talking about was that because of God's people's disobedience, they were carried away into captivity um, by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians said, well, because those Jews, they claim this great knowledge in God, yet God obviously is punishing them, so their God must be weak. You know, we can dishonor God's name as well by failing to practice the things that we preach. And you know, often the people who are most strident about their morality and about living by God's standards are the very ones who don't even know they're self righteous and they're an affront, and people don't even want to be around them. You ever been around Christians who put a lot of confidence in their abilities? You ever been around Christians who are self confident and critical? You ever been around people who call themselves Christians yet, re- and, and they rely on their ability to keep this their, whatever their accepted religious standard is? And they're self-righteous and they're judgmental? Or maybe that's you? And when you're around somebody like this, it can make the gospel, it can make Christianity, or at least the br- or brand of Christianity that they subscribe to, it can make it very unattractive and it can make you dislike the person and all that they stand for. You ever been around people like that? Are you a person like that? Are you judgmental and critical, self righteous? Be careful. This could, you could be the very person Paul's talking to here. That doesn't mean you're not a believer, but you have to be careful. Where's your confidence? Where's your trust? Where's your hope? You know, for unbelievers, for those who don't know the good news, it's easy for them to throw the baby out with the bathwater and assume that if that's what it means to be a Christian, I want nothing to do with it. When they see Christians who have no compassion, no mercy, self-righteous, judgmental, or separate from everyone else, and want nothing to do with anyone else, a believer thinks, "Well, I don't want anything to do with them." And the name of God is blasphemed. And it's often those of us who, who, who fall prey to legalism and self-righteousness that it's often the only person who can't see that they're violating the most important of all God's commandments, the command to love God and your neighbor as yourself because the attitudes and expressions of the self-righteous person are, are terribly unloving. They're not loving, they're not merciful, they're not kind. And legalism can cause people to blaspheme God. Having God's law Paul says, is of no value if you're not keeping it living by the truth humbly from a heart that seeks to worship God. Ask yourself if your life and the way you live are attractive to others. If you struggle with self-righteousness, then let me encourage you to see that as serious. Say, wait a minute, that's a sign that I have a misplaced confidence in my morality and in what I know, and God is not okay with that. And let it cause me to say, oh Lord, I need to hope in you. Ask yourself if your life displays the kind of love and grace and patience that you say you hold to. And I mean perfectly. None of, none of us do that perfectly. None of us. None of, we we all have a little bit of hypocrisy in our lives. Now it's not okay to be all, be all right with that. But the question is, are you in some measure growing in love and humility? The hard questions, I know. They're but they're important for us to consider because Paul is writing to the church and he's writing to the religious people in the church and that's us. He's writing to those who claim to be God's people and are very religious and then he provokes his reader in verse 25. He challenges the Jews' confidence in standing before God on the basis of externals and belonging to the Jewish club and, and so the, the next thing we see is that he has, there's a misplaced confidence in your association that can cut you off from God. He, he talks a lot about circumcision. Circumcision is a cutting off. And, and what he's really saying is that if you have a misplaced confidence in your association, you can actually be, end up being cut off from God. You, you're putting your confidence in the fact that you're separate. He's using a play on words here. You're, you're putting your confidence in the fact that you're separate, that you've, been, that you've been separated, that you've been cut off in a good sense from, from Gentiles. You're putting your confidence in the fact. But if you put your confidence in that fact, and you're standing in your social club and in, and in now I'm not those people, then you're in danger of being cut off. You who think you're separate, you will be separated. That's, that's frightening. Let me ask you, have you ever described your faith in, terms, uh, faith in God in terms of your social identity? You know, if someone says, what do you believe? And if, if, if your answer is, well, I'm a Catholic, and hopefully that's not the case this morning for, for the majority who are here, but he says, I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Presbyterian. It could reveal what you're trusting in. If you say, I'm a Christian because I pray to prayer. I'm a Christian because I walked the aisle, or I signed a commitment card, or I responded to the preacher at camp, or because I've been baptized, or I'm a Christian because I've, I've read and know the Bible, and I've memorized a, a book of the Bible, or I'm a Christian because I know enough of God's Word to teach other people. I'm a Christian because I teach Sunday school. I'm a Christian because... because of your club that you belong to he says consider what you're trusting in for a moment and he says in the next verse for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law but if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision for a jew that would have been heinous the fact that they were circumcised meant that they were set apart for god that they were god's people it was entry into the covenant family It meant that that was the covenant that God had given to Abraham. He says, because of your faith, now enter into this covenant of circumcision. It was given as a sign of the covenant with Abraham, and God commanded his children to be circumcised. And it was where the, without going into a lot of detail, was where the, the male's foreskin was cut away, and for the Jew, it signified entry into God's covenant family, a cutting away from the people who did not love God, and it was a mark that you were part of God's people. But by Paul's day, and for some Jews, they thought, well, being a part of God's people on the outside, that meant that, that they won't go to hell. That was what their confidence in. One of their labbi, rabbis, he wrote, he wrote that it's, it's most Jews, well, sorry about that, most Jews believe they would never go to hell. So he says, how can we who have been circumcised and marked outwardly as God's people be put into the same class as Gentiles? No one who is circumcised will ever go to hell. That's what some Jews believed. No one who calls themselves a Christian will ever go to hell. No one who knows the truth, who believes the truth, who's a member of a church, who's walked the aisle, who's made a profession of faith, who's been baptized, no one, will, no one like that will ever go to hell. But I remember the words of Jesus? Jesus, you, you were in our own town. We ate with you. We drank with you. We heard your teaching personally. And Paul's saying circumcision doesn't rescue a Jew from the judgment of God if you, if you don't live out what you know from the heart. In Jeremiah 9, the prophet Jeremiah taught the same lesson. Jeremiah nine twenty five says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. If it's all about externals, he says, For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. In verse 26, Paul says, So if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? What he's saying is that you, you put so much confidence in your circumcision and your status and your social club and who you belong to and what you're a part of and what you call yourself and your identity. You put your, so much hope in those things. But you know what? If someone actually was to love God and obey the law, they would, have, they would be considered as circumcised doesn't mean keeping the law makes you a member of God's family, but it's a sign that you're a member of God's covenant people, and it's also meant to provoke you and say, hey, wait a minute, am I living, is my life really any different? Not not just moral, externally. He's saying is, what he's hinting at here is that by faith, an uncircumcised person can be counted as perfectly fulfilling the law and be accepted by God as a member of God's people. Are you by faith Counting yourself in Christ as perfectly fulfilling the law, is that how you're accepted? If so, there's, there's good cause for hope. The Jews believed that the righteous would judge the unrighteous, and the assumption was that they were the ones righteous, and so Paul's addressing that in verse 27, but he flips it on his head and he says, yes, the righteous are going to judge the unrighteous, and it's the uncircumcised who's counted as obeying the law that will judge the disobedient in the law. And he seems to be speaking in the future when, when Gentile Christians would condemn those who had received the law of Moses and disobeyed the Mosaic law not trusting in the gospel. They stand as testimony to what the Jews should have been, trusting in God from their heart. Are you trusting in God from your heart? Look in verse 28 and 29. Paul explains really the the final point that we're looking at this morning is that God rewards those who trust in him from the heart. Do you want to be rewarded by God? Do you want to be praised by God? Do you want God's approval? God approves of. He praises those who trust in him from the heart. Look in verse 28. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. He goes on to explain the reason why the Gentile Christians will one day act as testimony of the judgment of the Jews. He says, one who claims to be a Jew, claims to be God's people, and one outwardly only is not truly one of God's people. Looking the part, acting the part, it doesn't make you a Christian. Being a member of the church doesn't make you a Christian. Going to church every Sunday, although we're supposed to, really. Um, g- being a part of a small group, and we would love you to be a part of a small group, um, in, being faithful in those ways, even though those things are good, we should be pursuing them as worship and a means of God's grace. But you can't hope in those things. Being a part of God's people has never been about outward physical duties alone. Even trusting in your own orthodoxy, you know, maybe you can recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and maybe you know the great truths of the Church. that that doesn't earn you the praise of God. Maybe you've had some great experiences and you've had some wonderful feelings and, and maybe you look back and you say, I remember that experience that I had and it felt so great, but you know what? Your feelings won't make you acceptable to God. Your performance, your liturgy doesn't make you a part of God's people. He says instead, being a true Jew, what does that mean? He's being a true member of God's covenant family. It's really about whether we're living for God internally inwardly. Who, who are you living for? Are you inwardly living from God for God from the heart? You see, the Apostle Paul was concerned with the church really, truly being alive in Christ, and, and that's our concern today as well, is that my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would, would even as he's bringing conviction, conviction, revive us and say, let's, let's not put confidence in anything else because we need confidence in Christ. We need confidence in God. But we don't need confidence in God that's misplaced, that's misleading. The Spirit, he says, is the one who circumcises God's people of the heart. So circumcision comes to the Spirit of God and not obedience to the letter of the law. Look in verse 29, it says, A Jew is one inwardly circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. What in the world is that talking about? It's a matter of the heart by the Spirit. It means that only the Holy Spirit can bring about a circumcision of our hearts. That's the kind of person who receives praise from God. And that circumcision of the heart is not a new idea. God commanded his people to be circumcised in their hearts. Jeremiah 4 4 He says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah, inhabitants of Israel, of Jerusalem, let my wrath go forth like fire. A few chapters later, he gives a warning in Jeremiah six ten: To whom shall I speak and give warning that may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised; they cannot listen. Behold, the word of God is to them an object of scorn; they take no pleasure in it. Later on in Romans, Paul goes along to talk about obedience in the heart. He says, "Thanks be to God! Now we become obedient to the standard of living from the heart." But what is this true circumcision from the heart that he's talking about? Truly entering into God's covenant family, it's a matter of the heart trusting in God for salvation through Jesus. Not on the basis of anything you could ever do or what you know, but only on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in your place. Bragging about your law keeping is all about seeking praise from men seeking to love and obey God from the heart it gains praise from God which which one do you want praise from men or praise from God and then why does Paul talk about the covenant of circumcision so much what's he doing He, he mentions circumcision so many times in this passage but isn't he talking to Christians well any covenant it was symbolic of the penalty that you'd receive if you disobeyed the covenant even the covenant of circumcision so when when god for instance in the old testament he cuts this bull in pieces and walks between it it was symbolic of the penalty that would come for breaking that covenant the death that would come circumcision it's without going into detail detail it's a it's a very personal intimate cutting off and it symbolized being cut off from god in a very real way in a painful way cut off from life cut off from god if if the covenant was broken You would personally, intimately be cut off from God in a painful way if you break the law. But the problem is that we've all broken the law. We all deserve to be cut off from God. So what does it mean to be circumcised in our hearts? Paul wrote about something in in Colossians 2, and I want us to look there together as we get ready to close. Colossians 2, verse 9, it says, In him... Speaking of Jesus, in Jesus you were also circumcised, and listen to this, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with the legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What he's talking about here is circumcision of the heart that's done in Christ. Jesus what is the circumcision of Christ Jesus was cut off in our place He actually experienced that cutting off and is putting our hope in the fact that he was cut off for us In his suffering on, on the cross he was actually separated from God and he was forsaken He took the penalty the very personal penalty of covenant breaking with God and he was cut off and forsaken by God and in death he was he was forsaken from the, the land of the living. And he took the curse of all lawbreakers who by faith believe in the good news of Jesus. And so to be circumcised in your heart means that you're putting your hope in the fact that he was cut off for you so that now you'll never be cut off. Because we're in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit, he applies that the law keeping of Jesus to us, and the Father praises us for the works of Jesus, if as if we've ourselves kept them. So we're not condemned, and we don't need to live for externals and the praise of others. We're being confident in who we are in Jesus, because we've been circumcised in our hearts by Him, and by the Holy Spirit. Now today, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have been wrestling wrestling with your performance and trying to figure out how do I get to know God? There's, there's only one way to know God and it's not by your performance. It's, it's by putting your faith in Jesus and saying, God, thank you that, that you gave Jesus all the punishment that I deserve and that instead he was cut off for me so that I would no longer be cut off. If you're a believer here and maybe you've been self-righteous, maybe you've been putting confidence in your knowledge, your ability, maybe you've been lacking faith or passion, let me encourage you, God wants to revive you. He wants to revive us again with fresh love and affection for him that's that's unencumbered by any trust in what we know, any confidence in in our abilities, that's unencumbered by what you call yourself or your own self-image. He wants you to be set free from those things and truly revive you. He wants us to have the circumcision of the heart, knowing that we will never be cut off because Jesus was cut off for us and to receive a fresh joy in that. Amen? I want the band to go ahead and come up and I want to sing, I think that song about um, reviving, revival, I can't remember the name of it, but let's sing that together. But right now, let's pray.